Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 13th, 2018, and my guest is Joel Peterson. He is the chairman of the board of JetBlue the chairman of the Board of Overseers of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's the former CEO and CFO of Trammell Crow, one of the world's largest and most successful real estate companies. He's the Robert L. Joss Adjunct Professor of Management at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where he's taught for over 25 years. And he's the author of The Ten Laws of Trust, a book we'll be talking about today. Joel, welcome to EconTalk. Nice to be with you, Russ. I want to start with your career. Uh, Trammell Crow is a uh, an extraordinary company that a lot of people have never heard of, and they also don't have really a good idea of what a real estate company does other than maybe buy land, build buildings, uh, and then rent them out. And I, and I know it's just a little more complicated than that. So talk about what a company like Trammell Crow does and um, how you got to the top of it. Well, it does buy land, build buildings, and rent them out, but it is very complicated to get there, and it's even more complicated because it's made up of kind of a loose confederation of partners who are spread across, in our case, it was 92 cities across the United States, and they need a degree of autonomy and freedom, and they're also independently wealthy, and so they're hard to manage, and you don't really want to manage them. They're entrepreneurs, and so their job is to basically um, take on the development process, which is relatively complex, and we can talk about it if you're interested, but they, they take that on at a granular level within their local markets. What's the national role that, that the umbrella organization plays? So one thing was to provide sort of a uh, – of a system of um, rules, policies, ways of going about things, um, uh, uh, hiring people that were consistent with our brand, uh, onboarding them properly, evaluating projects, uh, making sure we had the right capital structure. And typically the capital structure is thought of at two levels. One is at the deal level. Each deal needs to have sort of debt and equity capital. And then overall you have kind of a of a company-wide or at least division-wide financial statement, and you want to monitor each of those, make sure they make sense. So with that many people, it's onboarding and firing, removing people who don't perform. It's kind of the evaluation of it. I, I When I first came on, uh, I said it was a little bit with Trammell Crow, like he was the and That's hub. a person's name, actually. Yes. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's his, yeah, his the founder's <laughs> Trammell Crow. Not His name people. was actually Fred yeah. Trammell Crow, <laughs> yeah. but uh, he thought Trammell Crow was a much more engaging name. I agree with him. He was the fifth of eight children that grew up on the wrong side of the tracks in Dallas, Texas, went into um, the Navy in World War II and came out uh, without a college degree. Uh, I think he got a CPA, uh, and then he started building a warehouse, uh, and from there built more and more of them until he became the largest single private developer in, in the world. Um, so, yeah, uh, but he was kind of the hub. And from him radiated all of these spokes. So he made individual deals with entrepreneurs in various cities, but there was no rim around the sp- 
around the spokes. And that's really when, when I arrived, I worked with another fellow and we, we actually tried to create a company. A lot of deal companies never become real companies. You know, they don't persist. They don't, they're not sustained over time. They last the life of the founder and that's it. So what we wanted to do was create what we called an evergreen company. And how'd you do that? Well, I think by making sure we had the right people in place, by making sure we had governance um, processes, uh, by evaluating uh, each uh, – not not only each deal but each division and then making changes when they needed to and having a – we set up a management board, a 10-member management board with representation. We tried to make common decisions about things that uh, you know allowed us to, to be a company. What's the chain of command in a situation like that where you have people on the ground in all those different cities, each one with their own unique aspects of geography, regulation, all kinds of tax issues? How often did those people come to Dallas? Uh Several times a year, probably, but we, I mean, we traveled a lot out to their operations. I remember every October, November, uh, I was on the road almost for the entire six or seven weeks uh, that we were doing what we called management reviews, uh, where we review each project, each division, each set of operations, uh, the partners. Um, and uh, so there is a governance structure that uh, you, you try to superimpose on this highly entrepreneurial enterprise. And you don't want to crush. In fact, you wouldn't get the best people if you reduce their autonomy. You want them to make the decision. You want them to have an economic stake. You want them to make the decisions in their own um, areas of expertise. And how do you keep um, people from? I'll call it going rogue, but it, that you know that would include fraud, but it would also include just overconfidence, um, etc. Who's making the final decisions and how did that how did that get how does that get done so uh that was actually a big challenge uh and it was hard to to make that happen the best uh governor on that is to make sure that the regional partner the guy that's overseeing that local fiefdom really has an important stake he has a net worth at stake he's a competent capable person with high integrity and that that's the best control uh then i think you can have financial controls beyond that where you have cpas and financial officers that review things and report in so you have a level of financial oversight uh and then i think this management board where you get people together and you develop a bit of a camaraderie uh you know in the end people don't want to disappoint each other you don't want to if you're at a at a table with uh, nine other uh, developers, successful developers, you don't be, want to be the one that sort of violates the standard that goes out and takes uh, obscene risks. So there's a little bit of that sort of self-governance that gets set up when you when you develop a set of principles and high, have high-quality people around the table. Well, we've talked a lot on the program about skin in the game, and obviously that that's a key factor, but there are those differences in risk and uh, prudence uh, that differ across individuals. Uh, did you have a philosophy for hiring and promoting that that tried to you know square that circle, deal with that trade off, or did you uh, try to manage people as they went forward and you learned more about them? Well, we tried to hire people that uh, had a basic sense. You know, I don't know how many entrepreneurs you've been around, but they they are really extraordinary people. They're uh, they they uh, they have a sense of where the puck is going to be. 
Hmm. They have. The, uh, this is referring to this Wayne Gretzky quote yeah. that you may have heard the, sure. that he was successful because he skated to where the puck was going to be. Well, uh, these people tend to have an have a sense of that. So, by uh, I would say that as CEO, I spent forty percent of my time hiring and onboarding and evaluating people. More than deals. It was more important to get the right people. Now, what we did was we started out uh, with the – so we hired mostly from Stanford, Harvard, Wharton, the best business schools. And we started these uh, young people out as leasing agents. And that this was compared with big paying jobs as consultants or investment bankers or wherever most of the NBAs were going at the time. And we started them out at $18,000 a year as a leasing agent plus commissions. And that's not a glorified – Job. I mean, that's not what MBAs really want to do. But uh, by trusting them little by little with deals to make a lease deal, we could evaluate how good they were in dealing with customers, how smart they were in evaluating the risk reward, whether they were financially uh, savvy. And then you trust them a little bit more to go out and buy land and then to design a building. And, you know, it just over time, you develop this sense by training people through it's almost like an apprenticeship. Sure. Um, and so that was that was actually a, a wonderful control. But like you say, there are people who go rogue at certain points in time, and that of course happened to us. Yeah, my understanding is that Enterprise Rent-A-Car did the same thing, which was you know privately held originally. I don't know if they still are now, actually, but but you know basically had the private control, and they put their no matter how skilled the people were, they start behind a desk renting cars. Yeah. The other advantage of that is um, it lets. People understand the business, obviously, from the very uh, ground up. The other – and then finally, the thing that Enterprise does, and I'm curious if, if Trammell Crow did this as well, they would be okay with a – once that person became a manager, say, of an office, that manager could end up making more money than, than the CEO. Uh, yeah. and, and they wanted to allow that prize to motivate people to excellence and to uh, – and, and especially when they start on that ladder at that low level. You know, it's funny. In a lot of organizations, the salespeople make more than the CEO. Yeah. Uh, so it's not unusual. And, and uh, you know, every organization needs revenue, and the people who generate revenue are pretty important. And the, if you can find ones that have a broader scope than just making and closing the deal, you've really got something special. And that's what I think we had at Crow. We had people who were f- sort of full-gauge developers. They could go soup to nuts, and they had this ability to get along with people, to make sales in the most sophisticated way in very complex transactions. So who better to trust? Now, when you said 18000 for a, a newly minted MBA, what year were you thinking of? I was thinking of, well, all the way from uh, probably 19, so I started out at 14.4, which was by far my lowest offer, and I went to Europe. Um, So, and then I think it didn't change, um, at least through 1990. So we just didn't adjust that. We we made, people had to make money other ways, you know, either through commissions or through uh, development profits. I just want to mention in 1980, when I came out of a, PhD program at University of Chicago. My starting assistant professor salary was eighteen eight. I think is was the number. Uh, I didn't get commissions though. Joel, I just want to get that on the record. Uh, <laughs> well, that was, so you were paid more than Crow Partners. Yeah, I, mean, well, I was. On. I was ready to. I was expecting that to last for a long time, and I would have been totally happy. <laughs> but uh, I've been more fortunate financially than that. Uh, as have most economists. It's been a good run for economists. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the day to day aspect of, of of development. I. I have to confess I have a bias against real estate developers, and I want you to either confirm it or challenge it, which is uh, 
there's so much municipal regulation around land use in large cities. And certainly there's a lot in small cities too, but in cities like New York, San Francisco, Chicago, uh, a huge part of that business must be involved in not just knowing the rules of the game, but uh, making nice with politicians. And I always felt that was an aspect of real estate. It was an unfortunate aspect of in America, but a reality that we don't really have this romantic, well, it's your property, do whatever you want with it. In fact, of course, it's highly, highly regulated. Talk about how that affected your business and how it might vary by city. Well, you're right. It does vary by city, uh, for sure. It is a part of the business. Uh, but, you know, I always looked at the developer's role as one of an orchestra leader. There are roughly 30 parties that touch a transaction from beginning to end, including, you know, consultants, lawyers, architects, engineers, financiers, uh, property managers. It goes on and on. And one of those constituents, one of the people, one of the parties that has an interest is, of course, the government. Uh, it can be simple if you're in... Um, you know, Texas, in a lot of those cities, it's very easy. You, you can get uh, building approvals in a day or two. In New York, for example, when uh, we built Terminal 5 at JFK, we had the Port Authority of New York, the Port Authority of New Jersey, uh, two governors, four senators, uh, historical societies, all kinds of interest groups, unions. I mean, so you had to have a certain political skill to deal with that. And you couldn't just ignore it and say, well, I'm about – uh, design or construction or whatever. You had to be about those two. So what you find with developers, and this may change your view of, uh, of not of the process, but of the developer in terms of somebody who can really juggle a lot of balls and not drop any of them until it's time to bring the whole thing together. It's a very complex process that I think is misunderstood. Yeah, well, my prejudice is, is, I have a lot of respect for the, for the uh, final execution. I mean, to build a, a, just a simple something simple about it, but to build a, a simple project relative to some others, you know, one large building in a large city is obviously an enormously complex task. I have tremendous respect for that. The part that I have a little trouble with is the the need to is the make nice part. Um and and yep. and, and the fact that and I think this is the the key part of this process when we think about the public policy side it's inherently gray. It's inherently ambiguous. Uh, you know, if there were just complicated rules and you had to follow them, that'd be straightforward. But my impression is, is that a lot of times the rules are deliberately not so straightforward so that you have to spend time and money on those folks who can open doors for you, grease the right palms, et cetera. I'm not talking about an outright bribe, obviously, though that I'm sure happens in, in some cases and in uh, various parts around the world. But I'm just talking about the fact that there's a schmoozing. Um, I don't know, right? You tell me what it's what the right word is. <laughs> no, I mean I think you're right, and it is more in some places than in others, and it is one of the more distasteful parts of it. Um, in fact, the very first project I built was in Lyon, France, and it was in the middle of an industrial park, a building exactly like its next door neighbors, and we couldn't get a building permit. It went for six months without getting a building permit, and I couldn't understand what was happening until somebody said, "Go to this law firm." They'll uh, they'll help you. And the next Monday, I had the building permit, and then I got the bill, and it was three hundred thousand francs. You know, <laughs> I assume that's a lot of money. <laughs> so it was, it was a lot. Of, certainly, at that point in time, it was a ton of money. And they made a phone call, and I don't know what happened. You know, and I'm basically that was the end of my desire to do business in France. I was kind of done. 
with that. So it shows that I have the same uh, visceral reaction you do. It was less an element. I mean, in the United States, it's um, it's a lot more elegant, but I think it subtly is going on. You have to make sure that you're on the right side of the people who control a lot of these decisions. Now, many of them are wonderful, reasonable people who are just trying to protect whatever, yeah, historical sure. issues or whatever. So, uh, But there is the, this element that uh, you've identified, but I don't think it's pervasive. Did you... Did you have projects during your time there where uh, you eventually hit a a roadblock much farther down the road than you would have been happy with? And in other words, if you'd known how it was going to go, you wouldn't have started. But once you, and once you got to that point, you were you just had to still pull the plug. You know, uh, the one that I recall uh, was in Georgetown. We built a, an office building in Georgetown that took us so doggone long to get through that the market actually turned against us by the time we were ready to get in the ground. And uh, we had actually started scraping the earth and we had the we had financing, uh, architectural drawing, engineering drawings, everything, and we were moving forward with the project. And uh, the market went against it, which I think is the most common thing, is it's not an historical society. Typically, you've got all of those things buttoned down before you start. Right. But the market can turn against you. And so at that point in time, we thought about should we pull the plug? And then we realized that between the land costs uh, and the soft costs – uh, we had already spent 50% of the cost of the building. It was going to be three years before it was delivered to the market. So why not go ahead? Our, you know, The risks are lower going ahead than, than otherwise. But yeah, you do have intervening variables. It's a, it's a little bit of a scary business that way. I mean, you have to be able to peer into the future and know what things are going to be like when you deliver a project. Because um, so. it's inevitably, even if, even, if, <laughs> exactly. even if the regulatory process is smooth, building takes time, and that's just part of the reality. And things change. We're in a dynamic market. So you're, sure. you're not a travel crow now. Um, you're out of that business in a, in a formal sense. But I'm curious, given what you experienced there as CFO and CEO, if you could change one thing about real estate public policy in America, and of course, it's not a national market it, it, it there are national aspects of the market but it's not a national policy market each city has its own regulations each state has its own regulations but is there a type of regulation that you think is the most uh troublesome and 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 not helpful i mean there are troublesome regulations that need to be there perhaps yeah. but but ones that that you think are there to protect say vested interests that could that we could best be disposed of particularly when we think about the high, the problems of high the high price of housing in America today in certain urban areas. Yeah. Um, so I think the regulations, you know, where there, where where you have over exuberant application of whether it's riparian rights or, uh, you know, zoning That's rights water. or historic, yeah, riparian. or historical, or you know, I, I I had a ranch property one time that I was trying to develop a, a home on. And they discovered that there was a San Francisco garter snake that lived on this property. So they put little radio transmitters on this thing and followed them for 18 months to determine whether or not any of the traffic would interrupt these guys. And in the end, it killed the project. I mean, we could have done it, but it just raised the cost so much. So I think the application of those kinds of things over and over uh, can be difficult. Uh, The one comment that you made earlier on, I want to just reflect on where you said there's not a national policy. There is not even a a local policy. It's interesting. One time I was asked, uh, how is the market in Los Angeles? And so I called our partners in Southern California, and they said – 
Joel, there are 130 markets yeah. in Los Angeles. So <laughs> just to give you an idea of how fragmented uh, the business, the real estate business is, you really have to pay attention to the. It's a very local business, and and each property is, uh, you know, has a has a, a longitude and a latitude to it that's unique. But you know, you and I occasionally cross paths in in Palo Alto, California. Uh, price of housing in Palo Alto is very high. Very hard to build a house from scratch in California, an apart in Palo Alto. Very hard to build a a an apartment building. And anything you want to do with land there, and that's true, I think, throughout the Bay Area, and I know it's true in a, in many cities, it takes time, and there's a huge amount of uncertainty around it, like as you as you mentioned. Is there something that might be done in those situations you think would make it better? Well, I think to reduce you have to that some, time. I think if you have a strong city council or somebody who can take control of all of these things, because you have architectural committees, you have committees that look at uh, protecting trees, uh, arbor uh, kind of thing. I mean, we built a home uh, that took us 10 years to build, and uh, it got delayed at every turn. And, f and finally, the various societies were fighting each other. One would say, take out this tree, and another would say, no, you've got to leave that tree. It's historical. And so if you had somebody that could uh, arbitrate these things and just sort of clear the deck. But we went to a city council meeting one time, and I finally took a lawyer with me, and she said, uh, this is the most Kafkaesque mm -hmm. meeting I've ever been in. So there's just sort of no way to break ties. You know, the famous uh, story of Steve Jobs out there who had a home that he wanted uh, uh, to take down and they wouldn't let him to do it, let him do it. So he just left the, all the doors and the windows open and he said, nature will take care of it, <laughs> which what? is not the outcome you want to have. No, and, he, not and then he pointed out, he said, you know, somebody may enter this property and get injured and, uh, and I'm going to hold the city responsible. The joke that comes to my mind, that, that's a true joke, unfortunately, I, I think. But the joke that comes to my mind is the guy on the on the plane sitting next to a guy who says, where are you from, Texas? He says, what do you do? Well, I have a ranch. He says, well, you know, my ranch is so big, you can't drive from one end to the other in a day. And the guy next to him says, yeah, I had a car like that once. <laughs> uh, but that, that's, um, you know, it's like it took you 10 years to build a home. You might think, oh, my gosh, it must have been an incredibly large. No, it wasn't. It was no. just <laughs> – uh, right. A lot of lot of barriers and and rules. Yeah. And we talked on the program. Uh, it's usually in the context of, of poor countries, uh, the cost of doing business. And, and we talked about the World Bank report that looks across countries and how long it takes to get permits. And you know, one of the things that gets recommended in those situations is something close to a one stop shop, where instead of going to the forty different bureaus to get the different kind of permits. Uh, there's one clearinghouse, so you don't have to spend all the time. But clearly, in America's cities, we still uh, we have a similar problem. Well, that would be my solution too. I think if you just have an arbiter who could come in and say, "This is how it is," then developers are very uh, proactive, active, kind of energetic folks. They'll get it done. But they just need to know where the rules are. And I think if you read any of Tom Sowell's stuff on the housing crisis in uh, in the Bay Area, you kind of see that it's derivative. The costs are derivative of regulation. And a lot of that is just the lack of clarity. Yeah. Well, and, you know, time introduces uncertainty, which introduces prudence and caution, obviously. Let's yep. let's switch gears. Let's talk about JetBlue. And uh, I, I mean this as a compliment. It may not sound that way, but you have a strange career. Um, <laughs> you, you went from uh, a very specialized uh, – these are the stops that I know about. Maybe there's more, but you went from a very specialized 
uh, I would call it almost arcane aspect of a business, which is as we're, we've been talking about the real estate development business. And then somehow you got involved with an airline. How, how'd that work? Yeah, I, I always tell people I can't keep a job, so I have several going <laughs> at once. <laughs> it is it is definitely a cobbled uh, career, but and and I've had people who've actually looked at it and said, "Wow, what a cool career! How do I get there?" And I have to say, you know, it's serendipity. Uh, it's circumstances, you know, you could sure. never plan a career like this. But what happened with this was one of my students at Stanford uh, was with George Soros, who was backing a startup airline. Uh, and they looked around and said, you know what, We're, we've got to bet the company decision in front of us to build a new terminal at JFK. And nobody has ever built a building. And this is going to be a $750 million project and uh, it's going to take years, and it's very complex and everything. Why don't we get somebody on the board who has ever done this? And so my student uh, said, well, you know, let's, um, let's approach the guy who taught me real estate in business school. And so I agreed to put some money in and uh, went on the board. And before long, I was working on developing T5, Terminal 5 at JFK. And before much longer, I was the lead director of the company and then finally the, its chairman. So never planned, but it just kind of came my way. So at that point, when when that terminal was being imagined by JetBlue, what stage of life was JetBlue at? Uh, pre-plane. We had no planes. Right. <laughs> what, kind of a, what kind of a business model is that? Oh, let's start yeah, a company big, with right? a $750 million <laughs> investment and – with five jurisdictions and uh, and lots of tree people and water and and historic sites and and uh, let's go. This is called American entrepreneurship. Yeah, that was a roll of the dice. It's well, it's amazing. I mean, a lot of times what you do, you have kind of an evaluation stage where you're thinking uh, feasibility, market conditions, interests of various parties. Um, the power of market demand and assessing that correctly allows you to have some confidence that you'll get through it. For example, in a, in a normal market, you'd say, well, what are the vacancies existing? What are the projects coming online? What does job formation look like? What's population growth? And you'd do a feasibility study and uh, you'd figure out you know, what you're going to build and uh, you'd add all those things together and that would be a denominator. <laughs> and then you'd assess the rents and that would be your numerator. And you'd say, okay, that's the yield on this project. And um, and then you go out and shop for capital and you get a weighted average cost of capital between debt and equity. And you say, if the, if the uh, yield uh, exceeds the weighted average cost of capital, we've got a business. And you give probabilities to all of those things and you move forward. Well, the same thing in this airline business is we said, gosh, we've got a catchment area. Uh, which is a market area of 6 million people out Long Island and everything. And we've got an airport that is not used very much uh, during the day in uh, at JFK. And we've got an empty terminal out there. I don't know if you remember uh, T6, Terminal 6, uh, but it was rat and pigeon infested. It hadn't been flown out of for a long time. So we basically started out by saying, we're going to scrub this, paint it, fix it up, and start flying some planes out of it. So we flew out of T6 for a while. And then we basically said, okay, now we're we're, we're of a size that we know we, we've got to develop T5. So we knew that T6, Terminal 6, was a, uh, was a temporary um, terminal for us. And so we knew we had to build, if we were going to build a great airline, we knew we had to build a great terminal. Was so that, that was part of the plan. Whose vision was that? 
So whose vision was it to get it started to think there's a market opportunity here for a new airline? I mean, it's really hard to start an airline. Yeah. Well, David Neeleman uh, is an entrepreneurial genius. Um, he's, he, I think he's the greatest genius in the history of uh, commercial airlines. He's started three of them. Um, he, he's just – he's an amazing entrepreneur. He's um, – in fact, he started Azul when he left JetBlue, which is basically JetBlue yeah. in Brazil. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he, it, was his, it was his vision. So that's, uh, that's pretty incredible. Now, my – I don't know him. Uh, I don't know his, his uh, work except JetBlue. Uh, but my hero in the airline business has always been Herb Kelleher of Southwest sure. and – I once heard him say that his edge, the thing that made Southwest successful, was his remembering that the bad times will come. <laughs> uh, huh. He said everyone else just overexpands in the good times and forgets that it's a cyclical business. Now, I'm sure there's a little more to it than that, but I'm curious, what's your reaction to that? And uh and how has JetBlue dealt with that cyclical factor? Well, I think he's right. He was more right in the past than maybe now because there's been such a consolidation. Right. There are four carriers that have 80% of the market now, and there's a lot more discipline. I think there's more discipline among the suppliers and among creditors too. So I think I think the industry has grown up a bit. Uh, and I think there were some other things that had to do. I think the fact that they had one airline uh, aircraft type yep. um, was a smart play, and I think they did some great things with people. I think the head – in fact, the head of their people group actually came over to JetBlue and was on our board there. And she actually headed up people, uh, the hiring of people, so you can build a great culture, which uh, Southwest had too. Yeah, I was uh, – in its heyday, I still think it's a good airline, but in its heyday when I think it was a better airline as a travel – I don't care. I'm not talking about financially. I'm talking about as a travel experience. I was always struck by how incredibly uh, happy – <laughs> their employees were and how pleasant it was to interact with them. And I used to ask them, you know, do you like working in Southwest? And they'd say, you know, they'd say yes. And they, it was clear they meant it. It wasn't a, it wasn't a line. Uh, they, they, somebody did a good job there. <laughs> well, it's funny. I always say that uh, the, my, my rules for leading a company, any kind of company are that you want to have respected members of a winning team doing something meaningful. And those three things, you know, if you can be shown respect, if you can believe you're winning and something you're doing is meaningful, people tend to flock to it and stay with it. And you can build a high trust culture. And um, so I think Herb did a good job of that. By the way, David Neeleman uh, sold Morris Air to Southwest Airlines where he was kind of um, the CEO under June Morris. And then he, he lasted all of five months with Herb and Herb fired him. And then he came and started his own airline and was 10 years at JetBlue. And, and we tried to elegantly make a CEO change, but David insisted on uh, telling the market that he'd been fired. So we love the guy. We think he was phenomenal as an entrepreneur, but just not the right guy for the next stage. And so, uh, so he kind of moves, he does the entrepreneurial thing that entrepreneurs do like nobody else, but they often run into this thing the um, academics call the founder's trap. Yeah. Well, let's talk quickly, and then we're going to turn to your book, but I want to talk quickly about what it's the phrase chairman of the board. Um, I think for the average person who's never been in the world of business, uh, I think we, we tend to think of the board as sort of a 
typically until recently just an old guys club of buddies with the CEO who, yeah, has somebody to bounce ideas off of. And then the chair, his job's to run the meeting. Uh, correct that, those impressions, if, if those are uh, not the case. Yeah, I think uh, I think there are some boards that are a little bit like that. Um, I think it is evolving, changing. Governance is getting better. There are people who evaluate. There are sort of rules now, and you get a kind of a, a score. And investors pay attention to this score. And um, there are things like uh, you know, do you have elect? Does do all elector? Do all um, board members need to be elected every year? Because they people used to have these staggered mm-hmm. uh, terms that allowed it was kind of a poison pill against takeover. So there's a lot of things that have been introduced there. But to me, what the chairman does, fundamentally, what the, the board's responsibility is to evaluate um, and replace and hire a new CEO. The CEO should have all the management duties. So the fundamental thing you're doing as a board is evaluating the CEO. Then you're, of course, doing it against strategy, uh, human resource development. You're doing it against uh, customer uh responses. You're doing it against a whole series of metrics. But the chairman then helps set the board agenda. Uh, the first thing I did as a chairman was I set up a, an all-day off-site where we could just talk about strategy. Because today, in today's world, in board meetings, there's a lot of housekeeping. There's a lot of regulation. There's a lot of things you just have to do. You have a certain number of committees you must have. They must report. They all have to have charters. There's a certain rhythm to running a board. So you do all that stuff, but then you often don't have time to really get into, you know, what is going on in the market? What are our competitors doing? How do we build a deep and wide moat? And so we we started to go. So I think we're in our 10th or 11th year of going off site for a day or two to really talk about the market what our plans are there. So I think the chairman is sort of the ultimate uh, person to design an agenda, to call tough issues. Uh, if you're looking at an M&A, a merger and acquisition kind of issue, I think the chairman is typically the person that gets called by the other party. Sometimes the CEO may be. But so I think it, and, and, I, and my view has been it's to work effectively with the CEO, both to hold them accountable and to clear obstacles for them. Uh, to make their job easier. And you have a, an investment firm that you run. That's, you, we didn't talk. We didn't mention that, but you uh, you spend a lot of time investing in startups and yes. uh, evaluating companies. H- how many hours a month is involved in your life with JetBlue? Approximately. Well, it's, yeah, it's so. I would say I have typically have Saturday calls with um, the CEO. So that's the way I stay in touch with the CEO. I, I talked with John Thompson, who's the chairman at uh, Microsoft, and he says that that's what he does with Satya Nadella. Is he just has a Saturday call and they check in and you know just to stay in real time. And then you have quarterly meetings, which typically are a day's worth of committee meetings and a day's worth of board meetings. I'm, I'm forcing you to add this up as we go along, and then. <laughs> Uh, you know, the occasional call, the occasional special board meeting, and then a two-day offsite. So that's at least uh, 10 or 12 days a year plus calls and things like that. Are you spending uh, outside time reading about what's going on in that industry or somebody sending that reading around to other folks on the board? Or do you just kind of – I was going to say wing it, but that's not a good joke. I'm going <laughs> to leave that out. Yeah. Uh, no, we try to stay aware of what's going on in the industry. Sure. But do you end up spending time on that? Do you have to? Yeah, yeah, well, you have to. Yeah, I mean, you can't have a strategy that's independent yeah, I don't think of the so. marketplace. 
You know, I mean, fundamentally, what you're trying to do is carve a unique niche in the market where you're providing something better at a better value than anybody else because you have an unfair advantage. You have a competitive advantage. You have pricing power. You have whatever power you have to deliver a high-quality product that's high value. And so you have to know what others are doing in order to do that. Now, I, I'm going to make another bad joke, and I, you have to believe me that this just came to me. I did not script it <laughs> that I was going to mention that JetBlue is a blue-chip company. So I'm going to just go. leave that alone. But but my question is, as a as a traveler, as a consumer – uh, of JetBlue, you know, I see a tiny. As a traveler, we see a tiny piece of of that of a company like that, right? We see the. It's a crucial piece, obviously. It can't go bad, too badly for very long, or it's over. But JetBlue has a, has a reputation for being innovative, and it, as an outsider, we often have no idea what that could possibly mean. You know, my, you alluded to one example that Southwest, because it only has one type of plane. Uh, which was a really clever idea. Maybe they lucked into it. Maybe it was planned. I don't know. But because of that, their turnarounds famously shorter than other planes, other airlines, because they know the plane so well. Uh, their parts and maintenance as well uh, is easier. Their inventory is easier to keep track of, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of other kinds of innovation are there in the airline business you know, that that might be going on that we don't see that that you can share if you can? Well, there's a lot. It's funny. It was an industry that didn't change very much for yeah. a long time. And now with composites, uh, you know, there, and, and uh, I, I was interested to learn that, you know, these winglets, I don't know if you know what a no, winglet is, no. but it's that. And I don't know what you mean a, by a composite either. A comp, so a composite is a kind of a, of a uh, it's, it's not metal. You know, oh, it's you lighter, mean the material. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the materials that they can build planes out of now. And it extends uh, the distances they can fly. Um, but for us, some of the innovations were uh, TVs and seat backs. Yep. Uh, we developed a new kind of seating that allowed us to give people more leg room without reducing the capacity of the plane. Uh, we developed this mint service. But then the things you don't see are in baggage handling, facial recognition, um, you know, getting people through TSA lines, uh, uh, sea check uh, these engine checks and things that you have to do. We, in fact, at JetBlue, we even uh, set up a company called JetBlue Ventures and located it in Silicon Valley. And we make investments in uh, companies that have to do with all the various elements, soup to nuts, in the airline industry, and in fact, in the travel ribbon. So. Um, you know, it, it's an important thing, and it's hard as companies get bigger, it's harder and harder to innovate. It's kind of maintaining this entrepreneurial spirit that we were talking about in the real estate area. How do you keep that going? Yeah, very hard. It is hard. The other part that's hard is listening to customers because, you know, airlines, a lot of the things that go wrong in the airline business are not the fault of the airline. They're either God, like weather, or they're regulatory or bad luck or, you know, all kinds of things. But, of course, there are mistakes. And... As a result, though, you get a lot of angry people uh, who blame you for everything, I'm sure. And you probably have a lot of contented people you never hear from. Uh, they just go about their business and take their bag out of the rack and, and move on. How do you stay in touch with the consumer experience and, and get feedback from customers? Well, we have a formal process where we, we get a kind of a net promoter score uh, that we uh, – you know, I think most airlines are down 10, 15 or whatever. We're up in the 60s or 70s, something like that. So we, we actively monitor it. We respond to complaints uh, 
personally, I get complaints directly, but I, you know, the most gratifying part of this job for me and the most surprising part has been, I get more letter, way more letters thanking me for things and saying, wow, I had this incredible experience. Here's a story. And I think one of the things we do at JetBlue is something that I did at Crow many years is collect hero stories. You know, you, part of developing a culture and a high trust culture is having these hero stories that say, hey, this is what matters. Let's celebrate these things. So we get a lot of positive feedback from customers. It's surprising. Particularly in a commodity business. I mean, you almost have to consider the airline industry a commodity business. We all fly the same equipment between the same two locations. And, you know, how do you differentiate a commodity business? So we've tried to do it with with people, with smiles, with responsiveness, with caring about it. And uh, I think think we've done a pretty good job. Let's move to the… To your book, since you mentioned trust, the book's called The Ten Laws of Trust. Uh, and let's start with what you mean by trust, because it means a variety of things to different people. Uh, what's it for you? It's clearly a central issue in, in leadership and management. Um, what does it mean to you? So to me, it means uh, sort of ceding control to another party without all of the uh, safety nets that you might have in a contract or, you know, the ways that you can punish people for not living up to whatever they promised to do. So we, we, and we trust all the time, but fundamentally it's living your life in a way that both you can be trusted, that you're a trustworthy person, and it's figuring out how to work with others so that you can develop trust with them over time. You have a lot of kids, yeah. Um, I found as a parent, seating control is one of the biggest challenges of my of personal life and certainly the hardest part, perhaps the hardest part of being a parent is not running your children's lives. Um, have, have you found um, complementarity between your business experiences and your parenting or are those totally separate worlds for you that uh, for emotional and other reasons they don't mix? Well, probably for emotional reasons, you keep them separate. But I've actually found that the fundamental principles of building high trust with people and metering out trust and measuring results and having accountability and whatever are the same. Human beings are human beings, whether they're you know little people in your family or they're an EVP. Uh, and it's surprising how many things are shared in common. People do what is measured. Uh, they hmm. pay attention to what is celebrated. Uh Pounding people works in the short run and backfires in the long run. I mean, and that's with kids and uh, with executives. But you, you said EVP, you mean executive vice president. So if you, yeah, if you, have, you might have an executive vice president that you groomed and, and watched climb through the ranks and you're very proud of them. But the emotional involvement you have with your children is inevitably different. Do you find it harder to cede control to your children than you do to that uh, vice president? Or does it go the other way? I think it may even go the other way. Um, you know, you can't. You're not going to fire your kids. You may <laughs> fire that EVP. Um, uh, so I, I think that part of the job of a parent is to appropriately seed control at the right times and in the right ways with the right accountability and lessons learned. You know, we've all made mistakes as young people. And I think I was trained by my parents, you know, when I made a mistake, they, in fact, I have an interesting story that I recount in the yeah, book. Yeah, I hope you tell that. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, my dad uh, tossed me the keys to the car when I was maybe 14 or 15 years old and I backed it out and uh, jumped a curb and went down a, um, a little 
incline and I had the car hung up. This is the first three minutes of driving. And I tried like crazy to get it back on the driveway and couldn't do it. My dad came back out, helped me, got a neighbor, helped me get the car back up on the thing. And I thought, well, that's the end of driving yeah. for me. And he tossed me the keys and said, remember to put it in drive next time, son, and walked off. And, uh, you know, I was not going to let him down. I mean, from that point in time, I was careful. And, you know, I paid attention. He, I knew he trusted me. So he'd given me a little bit of rope. I'd hung myself. And he said, okay, I hope you've learned this lesson. Now remember this. And he walked off. And so to me, that's kind of the model I've used is give a little bit and uh, give correction. And then if they, if the party continues to do it, then you with, withhold. But you've not given them the car out on the freeway the first day. Yeah. So that's kind of the principle, both with raising children and in uh, giving authority to executives, I think. So I think about trust. I, one way I think about it is about expectations. So if I trust you, I expect that you're going to behave in a certain way. It might not always be a good way, but it's reliable. Uh, I can trust you, meaning I know what you're about. And that allows me to plan accordingly. And you know, Hayek talking about an economy and the interactions that we have with each other, there's a huge amount of that that makes an economy work. The fact that, uh, you know, I don't know what you like. I don't know what your demands are for various products. doesn't matter. Um, we're all making our own individual plans. And the fact that they can be woven together without a weaver, that they somehow work through the price system is really a, a miracle. And, and, you know, the example I use is I can show up on a you know, on a Sunday morning at the bakery, and there's going to be fresh bread there. I, it's just going to be, it's reliable. Now, yeah. the other aspect of trust, though, is don't exploit me. And you talk about uh, the vulnerability that's inevitable in, in trusting people. So talk about that and, and how that cha- challenging that is in any place, either business or parenting. Yeah, so you've made an interesting distinction there between sort of the kind of trust that is reliability, predictability. That may be the kind that we have with a mafia don. Yeah. You know, we know (laughs) a mafia don is going to shoot us if we don't pay back our our loan or whatever. You know, so uh, there's a certain predictability and reliability that you can say, I can trust that this will happen. The other thing you're talking about, though, I think is this idea that we have actually ceded control to some. We've expected a certain result from somebody and they fail us. Now, there are different ways of failing too. It may be through miscommunication. It may be through mistake. It may be through, or it may be through consciously saying, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that this person has looked the other way to do something that's harmful to them. And that's the one that I think is the most different, which is betrayal. And I think anytime that you trust in that way, you are exposed to betrayal. So the whole issue to me is how can you be smart about who you trust and how you trust? And how do you build an organization that gets really good and making a bunch of smart bets along the lines of trust? You're not going to make every one of them right. You're going to have to recover from some betrayals. But all in all, year in, year out, you're going to be more innovative, more flexible. Your decisions are going to be more durable. People are going to be happier if you're ceding trust and holding people accountable and doing it in this kind of metered out uh, way. That no. was a long answer. No, that's all right. Uh, I want to let's talk. I want to dig a little deeper into betrayal because really uh, there's two kinds. There's the uh, you didn't follow through. You didn't give best effort. Then there's the kind where you stab me in the back. Right. You took credit for something I did. Uh, you covered up a mistake uh, that's going to haunt me later. Those are the, uh, you know, that's the full range and, and they're very different. And I'm curious, 
Um, I guess my first question is, you're obviously a skilled person. And I say that not for my very small personal knowledge of interacting with you, but the marketplace has, has, has decreed you to be a skilled person. Giving up control of that and allowing the risk of that first kind of betrayal, which is just you didn't do it right, you didn't get the job done, that's incredibly hard, isn't it? Uh, it is don't hard. you? Because you're you're probably often cons- you're saying to yourself, I-, "I wouldn't let that happen." Yeah, no, you're vulnerable. Um, whenever you do that, you're vulnerable to kind of the character. Uh, in the book, I talk about you're vulnerable to the character of the other party. Are yeah. they really a fiduciary? But you're also vulnerable to their competence, yeah. um, and you're vulnerable to their authority. Do they really have the ability to pull it off? Because in the end, what you're looking for are results. You're expecting a certain result, and trust is built on results, on promises delivered. And it becomes a habit, in fact, if, it, if they're reliably delivered. So when somebody uh, betrays that, uh, then I think you uh, you realize your vulnerability one, but you've got a decision to make. You've got to figure out what to do. And betrayal uh, can actually uh, – well, it can do a number of things. But one thing it can do is make you just wary and make you just do yeah. less things and trust fewer people and whatever. I think that's the wrong response. Uh, I've been betrayed a couple of times in life, and they – and. Uh, for a moment, I paused and I just said, "My gosh, I can't ever do this again, or I'm going to have to. I'm going to make sure, you know, this never happens again to me." And then I finally decided, "No, I've got to move forward and live a great life and overcome this thing and get smarter." That's why I talk about smart trust. Just get smarter about uh, trust. And then I've I've just learned that um, what you find in a lot of the, the religious texts uh, all over are uh, the power of forgiveness. And, uh, you know, the idea of moving on, you know, and just consciously saying, I'm going to move on. I think you can li- – and, in fact, I had a particular point in time when I had a, a publicist and I was uh, talking about, well, I'm going to write the book that exposes this. Yeah. Thing. And, she, and she said, <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it was so gratifying to me. I just could hardly wait to do it. And she said, you know, the best thing to do is go on and have a great life. That will be the most powerful thing that you can do. And she was absolutely right because I couldn't move off a dime. As long as I was uh, thinking about it, I, I lived in the betrayal. It was so painful. My, my own advice is to say most times the best thing to do is just get away from the party. Don't try to repair it. Forgive and move on. Don't try to repair it. Sometimes the stakes are really high. For example, I always think of the case with children. You know, sometimes the case, the stakes may be so high with children that you say, you know, we're going to do everything we can to overcome this betrayal. But in most business circumstances, there's information in the betrayal that you should pay attention to and, and just move on. There are lots of fish. You know, I find that even with senior executives or people you've worked with, there are a lot of people that you can go to after that. And you don't need to feel like you have to repair that one and, you know, make it right again. You just forgive and move on and. You know, you'll live a bigger and better life that way. And I I realize that's a hard thing emotionally, but I think it is the smart thing to do. I think there's an incredible range of emotions when you're betrayed. I think there's anger. There's a desire for revenge. At the higher level, there's maybe I really wasn't wronged, and I probably need to look at this from another angle. And then there's just put it down and move on. And I think um, the last two are, are the, quote, right response almost in every circumstance. We recently had Ryan Holiday here talking about uh, revenge in his book, Conspiracy, and uh, Peter Thiel and Gawker. 
And I, I, he quoted, I, I want to say Marcus Aurelius, he says something like, if you're going to, if you're going to, uh, go get revenge, dig two graves, uh, because you're, you're going to damage yourself, uh, in the process. And, and yet so often we, we have that such a visceral re- betrayal is, is, it's a very tough thing to put down. And I, I'd like it, uh, we have a number of young, young listeners, people in their twenties and thirties who listen to Econ Talk. Two questions I'd like you to answer for them. One is, how do you avoid that emotional um, reaction, which I think is inevitable? You're going to have that reaction. You, you, the question is, do you act on it? And the second question is, if you don't want to be a betrayer and you want to be a person people trust, how do you establish any kind of relation, any kind of reputation for trust as, as a young person who, who doesn't have much of a track record? Yeah. Well, the last one first is I think you do small things really well and you fix them immediately. I, I remember one of the first um, assignments I had, I blew it on the numbers. I'd, I'd calculated the numbers. I'd given them to my boss. He went off and he made a deal on it. I, look, I, I took it home that night, uh, saw my mistake and went in the next day and said, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry, but I made a mistake on this. And he said, I've already done a deal based on your numbers. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've betrayed at some level. Yep. At the at the one kind of level, I betrayed him, and so what I said is, how do I make this right? And so I think as a young person, what I decided to make this right is I called the guy with whom he'd done the deal, and I fell on my sword and I said, you know what? Um, I was the guy who made this mistake. The deal was done based on this set of numbers. You know, um, can we recut? this element of the deal. He did it. We've since become friends. We're 40 plus year friends now. We've done hundreds of millions of dollars of transactions together based on that initial fumble and then repairing it. So I would say deliver in the small things and fix them immediately if there's a problem. Uh, now, your first question was, um, how do you avoid, uh, how do you avoid giving the feelings? into that? Well, yeah, you're not yeah, going to avoid the in. feelings. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, th- I think, um, I think the feelings are going to arise. We don't have much control over our emotions. We'd love to think we do, but they kind of well up based on who knows what. Uh, so I think you just say this is what's going to happen, and you anticipate this is the feeling. I learned early in my career to develop um, mantras, things that I would tell myself where I knew I had a problem. Uh, I, I developed three that changed my life where I just said, you know what, I've got to correct this in my own, what I call my operating system, my natural way of approaching, analyzing problems and making decisions. And so I would repeat these things to me sometimes several times a day, you know, and uh, and they actually over time, I corrected, uh, the, the input would come in and my response actually changed. My emotional response actually changed based on self-talk. So in some ways, what I feel like I was able to do is develop my own operating system. It wasn't inherited genetically or through peers or parents or, you know, a lot of people feel like, well, this is how I am. This is how I how I came. I have to, I have to do this. I feel this way. And I basically decided I didn't want that to be the outcome um, because I could see my flaws and I could see people I admired who were in places that I was not likely to go in life unless I fixed these things. So I think that's one of the things you can do. And I think you have an opportunity when you're young to that because you're building a brand that live with you through your whole life. And there'll only be a few times when people allow you to do much brand tweaking. So I'd say at a young age, figure out where your vulnerabilities are and develop the mantras that are going to allow you to rewrite your operating system. And then you'll have the feeling it'll well up and you'll say, I don't have to react to that feeling because I know a better way and you then own the better way. Yeah, my favorite example, 
that for me is uh, hold your anger for a day. Yeah. Which um, when that anger wells up and you write that email, don't send it. <laughs> Just don't even write it. Uh, it's okay to write if you don't send it, but certainly don't send it until 24 hours has elapsed. And once the 24 hours elapsed, you're not angry anymore. So 50 things have happened in the meanwhile. You don't have to take that revenge. Um, are you going to tell us your mantras? Are they yeah, too personal? First, yeah. No, it's not too personal at all. It, but it does reveal, I think, where I was weak, my problems. I think they're unique to each person. Yeah. But to me, my first one was, it's not about me. Yeah. You know, and I think I was at the center of my universe. I was the oldest of five kids, and the next oldest was a daughter who was four years younger. And I think I kind of had reinforced that it was all about me. Yeah. And uh, so I, I just had to tell myself over and over, it's not about me. It's funny that uh, when I was uh, with Stan McChrystal, who joined our board, uh, I asked him how he managed JSOC with all these competing and um, competing enterprises in times of stress. And he said he just had to remember it's not about me, it's about the mission. And I thought, oh my gosh, here's this general who's uh, extraordinarily accomplished telling me the same thing that was my first mantra. The second one was, um, I'm not my emotions. And that was to separate the stimulus response. Yep. You know, and uh, so and so it so is valuable. really hard. Oh. But to me, just to always say, and it could be the thing that you just described, is go sleep on it. But it really helped me to to add some analytics in between, you know, to sit down with a piece of paper and say the pros and cons and really try to think it through. And and this idea, one of the ideas that I always had was I've joint ventured my problems. Hmm. They're not and that's somebody else's fault entirely. You know, I've joint ventured them. And then to see the third one was, um, oh, I have all I need. Um, and this one was uh, a little bit the panic that you feel as a as a really good student when you ha you've been given a group project. I always found that I did all the work because I wanted to make sure we got the A. Yeah. And uh, so I blame. I could have predicted that, Jerome. Yeah. <laughs> so Shocking. you know, people, people would drop an assignment or whatever, and I'd do it. And and so I always had an excuse. If things didn't turn out right, there was always a reason. And uh, so I found that I was a little bit blaming. I held people to standards that were kind of unfair. And so just saying to myself, I have all I need, was a calming mantra to me. And so I found that my levels of anger, anxiety, and egocentricity went way, way down. And I would say that that's one of the reasons that I was able to move on to the next level of mantras. You know? And so I've, it's kind of been a constant battle with, with my natural operating system. But I think I've actually changed it fundamentally. No, I think that's correct. As you get older, I think if you do it right, you can actually – those emotions don't arise as much to start yeah. with, uh, for me anyway, at least. Or maybe it's just age. I don't know what it is, but uh, maybe it's not the mantras. But it's an interesting story about your group projects because you weren't much of a truster back in those days. So yeah, you obviously right. had to learn. <laughs> I, I, but that, that's consistent with what, you know, what I was saying earlier. I think when you're a highly skilled person who cares a lot and ends up picking up the, the ball if necessary for people who drop it, it's very hard to then just hand people the ball. And obviously you've learned uh, – You've worked at that and got, gotten just a little bit better, I suspect. You know, I think I actually think it's one of the biggest problems my students at Stanford have because they've been individual perform phenomenal individual performers. The biggest change that they'll have professionally is not being in control of the output. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a it's a sea change in who you are and how you go about things. Some can let go and others can't let go. 
and they drive people crazy. So we all know people who are, we know are extraordinarily intelligent, competent. They can do everything, but they can't manage a team. They can't get team results. And my analogy that I use in the book is that a relay team can run the 400 faster than the fastest 400 runner. And so That's you've cool. got to understand the power of team and you have to then let go. You have to, you have to pass the baton and, know, and just rely on the other party. And over time, you're going to do better doing that than you will by holding on to everything. So that, that image has helped me. So wh- another way that I think people, certainly I have, and I'm, I suspect you have as well, deal with those kind of emotional reactions that you're worried about uh, overreacting to is, is to look for a mentor, uh, yes. to look for what – you know, Adam Smith talks about the impartial spectator, the person who doesn't have a stake in the game, who can observe your behavior. And Smith uses it to describe the way we look at ourselves. But I find in my experience that it's good to have an actual impartial spectator to, to get a friend of mine uh, would say, get counsel. Uh, he didn't mean legal counsel. He meant emotional yep. counsel. Yep. Do you find that helpful? Have you found it helpful? And is that something you recommend? Absolutely. I mean, I think today having a coach is almost de rigueur. If you're going to be a CEO, you should have a coach. And so you can rent a coach or you can have somebody that you know personally. To have a mentor, I think, is a gift. I mean, I'll tell my students, if you can get a job where you feel like you have a real mentor, go work for free. It is you're being paid. You know, I mean, it's so valuable. It's incredibly rare and incredibly valuable. But you can't ask somebody to be your mentor. The market, the mentor market ship, the marketplace <laughs> does not work that way. That's a coach. Um, when you, when you yeah, hire one. Yeah. yeah, you got to do it that way. But I've also found that you can, uh, you can borrow mentors that are historical figures. I mean, I, to me, one of the most powerful ones is Winston Churchill. You know, I've read a lot of his stuff and I've visited the cabinet war rooms and I, I have his picture on my wall. There's a famous picture that uh, Yusuf Karsh, the yep. Armenian yep. Canadian took. photograph. Yeah. And, he, and I, so I have the, the photo on my wall where he grabbed the cigar from Churchill and glowering, he kind of, you could see his determination, you know, never, 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 never give up your give in. And uh, so I have that on my wall to remind me. So I consider him a kind of a mentor. You know, and it's a mentor when times are tough, when the odds are against you, when uh, when you got to fight him on the beaches and on the landing strips. Well, it's interesting you mentioned him. I'm a big Churchill fan also, and the war rooms are one of my favorite. It might be my favorite museum in the world. Uh, yeah. It's in the top five for me. Yeah. Um, at the same time, he was a terribly flawed person. Yeah. And I would say that trust was one of his worst attributes. So yeah. it's interesting. You know, he was not a good seater of, in, of control. He was a hands-on sticking his thumb into the every pie kind of guy. Well, and, and a lot of stupid decisions, I mean, flying across the channel. Yep. You know, I mean, he, he was deeply flawed uh, at all kinds of levels, but I use him as a mentor for perseverance. Yeah, that's you know, an interesting example, right? You, you, yeah. you pick him for one that you, that you think you need or that he's especially uh, inspiring because the other thing I wanted to ask you about is humility, not one of Churchill's strong suits and, and, and a good thing. In, in 1940, that, that it wasn't, uh, the world and Britain needed him to be arrogant, and um, that was probably for the best. But, uh, you know, when you told the story about going to the guy and saying, I messed up these numbers, uh, th- that story gives me goosebumps, actually, because it, it, it's I, I can empathize. I can put myself in your shoes, and I can't imagine making that phone call. Um, and I'm curious how, if you remember – how you came to think that that was a good idea because it could have 
the likely outcome is the guy would have laughed at you, literally laughed in your face and said, hey, a deal's a deal. Uh, learn, learn a lesson, kid, and, um, and, and hang up the phone. How'd you have the courage to do that? How'd you have the humility to tell a relative stranger that you messed up? And how important is humility going forward for you? Well, I think humility is really important. I, I view humility as sort of teachableness. You're willing to absorb knowledge from all kinds of places. And I, and I really regard one of the best ways you show respect to others and that you learn is to listen and to listen without agenda, you know, and to absorb things. So to me, I decided that I wanted a high trust brand and, um, and I was willing to kind of pay any price, fall on my sword or whatever. And, uh, and I, I'd, I'd judge that person to be a decent human being who would who liked me. So I think um, I, I regard negotiations as serial, not episodic. And so I said to myself, I'm going to have a lot of relationships with this guy over the years, and I want to start to build a high trust relationship where we'll adjust things. We go and I, I've adjusted deals for him. In fact, when I left Crow, he was in a series of transactions that were troubled. And I took all of them, you know, in trading out assets, I took all of his troubled transactions and worked them out for him. And it was a, it was a reflection of a 40-year earlier compact that we had made as human beings. Um, and so I, I really believe that you can – that's smart trust with a small portion of the people. And I judge that he was one of those kinds of people. He happened to have my same first name. And so there was this kind of an instant – connection there. I, um, I have lots of Jewish friends and I've always been attracted. He's a Jewish uh, investor and I've always had a great affection for my Jewish friends. And, uh, and uh, so I, I just felt like there was a way that this was going to work out okay. And, well, you got and I'm lucky. a little bit fearless. <laughs> I probably got lucky, but did, I, I've been lucky a lot of times. But you didn't tell like your that. boss, did you tell your boss you were going to do that? No, no. I mean, I, I probably could have, but I, I didn't. I just figured, shoot, I got to fix this. It's intense. Um, <laughs> now, a lot of what you say in the book and what you've said in our conversation is, is what I would call self-interested. You're, you're basically saying to be trustworthy is in your own interest, not to exploit people's in your interest. Uh, it should be easy. And um, I, I think um, – you know, I think it's ironic. I think most people think business is about ex- tragically. Too many people think business is about exploiting people. Um, it's a very bad way to think about making money. You can make money in the short run if you're lucky, but it's yeah. a very it's a non-existent long run strategy, and you get punished relentlessly. So one argument says being good is is you know it's its own reward, but it's also you're going to be rewarded by the marketplace. You spent a lot of time with with MBAs, and and you tell them things like you're telling me. But we also, at MBA education these days, there's a lot of emphasis on ethics. Do you think that ethics can be taught? Uh, certainly, you can, can, you can try to convince people that having integrity is in their own self-interest. But to get people to make a sacrifice, a little bit harder, right? And yeah. to give up money, to forego a deal that is, say, unethical or where you had an unfair edge, very difficult to do. And I feel in so many places in America – People just think, well, of course you shouldn't give up that deal. It's, it's you know, you're, follow, you're playing by the rules. And, but some rules are corrupt. Some rules shouldn't be exploited. And certainly some people shouldn't be exploited. What are your thoughts on ethics these days and in, in business curriculum and in business in general? 
So I think it's a good idea to teach the frameworks. Um, there are frameworks and ways to think about uh, ethics, and there are cases where people have ethical dilemmas, and you understand the trade-off. You know, I, I went to a, a summary of um, of papers uh, by academics on it, and it was a, it was basically altruism. Uh, was they equated that with ethics, and I went up to them with a um, with a business dilemma where I said, "Look, here's a here's a case where it's fifty one forty nine. People are going to get hurt on either side." I said, "Most of the ethical dilemmas I've had in life are really dilemmas. They're tough calls, and they had no answer for it." So I think it I think it is a good idea. To, I I would say that my belief is that everyone is self interested. And I think it's ridiculous not to think that people have no self-interest. I do think there's a difference between raw self-interest, you know, just short-term, and enlightened self-interest. Enlightened self-interest is an all-things-considered look at things. You have a brand. You have a relationship. If you regard um, uh, negotiations as serial, you say, every time I have a negotiation, we're going to run into – I'm going to run into the same person maybe 20 years down the road through his son-in-law. You know, because you have a brand. So that I, I have an, what I consider an enlightened self-interest about that. I mean, I think it is in my interest uh, because I'm building a, a high-trust brand. Um, so to me, that's the, the smart way to think about it and not to expect people to be altruistic. I, I'll tell you, um, in um, you know, this hurricane that we just had in Puerto Rico, I, I was so proud of how JetBlue responded because um, a lot of – the other, I won't name any, but they went in and they took advantage of photo ops and they charged people uh, high prices to get in and out and whatever. And we did the opposite. We flew planes in with generators and water bottles. We didn't have any press with this. We didn't, you know, it was not a PR opportunity. And yet what I think we've done is built a deep, high trust relationship with the entire island of Puerto Rico. Um, so I, I think I think it's smart. It's it's self-interested, but I think a lot of people are just so short-term. And we're trained, uh, of course, in the business world with quarterly earnings being measured. Uh, people are trained to make short-term bets. And you, so I you, think that's unfortunate. You hear that. And of course, if you listen to it, if you listen to that short-term siren, you're going to hurt your long-term value. I think so. Uh, and obviously, not every time, not every place, not every company. But So in cl let's close with the following question. You've been in the business world for a long time uh, at a very high level, and I worry for reasons that I won't – let's not try to explain, but I worry that our, that our business culture has changed in America as well as our personal culture over the last, say, 30, 40 years. Is that just me getting older and getting pessimistic, or do you think – of course, you're, you're getting older and more pessimistic too, John. But, <laughs> right. So it's hard to control for that. But what I'm curious is, in your experience, do you feel that the day-to-day -day, uh, levels of trust have, have changed? Or do you think yes. it's uh, it's a constant? No, I think that they've clearly gone down. I mean, I think if you look at sort of the millennials of whom uh, about whom a lot has been written, uh, they're wary. And why not? They were told to go to college, and now they've just got a bunch of debts, and they're living in their parents' base room, uh, basement. Um, they were told to buy a house. It would be a great investment, and they've seen neighbors lose their houses. They, I mean, there are a lot of things that were they were told. And, and then they get all their information from Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and whatever through these short-term, uh, questionably reliable sources. 
so I think you get me uh, too, Joel. By the way, <laughs> yeah, no, we live in a we live in this fast paced world where yeah. we're kind of forced into the. But I think deeply, we all know that trust has this bedrock nature to it, and real trust builds slowly, kind of a conversation, a moment of truth, a promise delivered at a time. Uh, and it can be strained through misunderstanding, miscommunication, failure. So we, we understand we have this fragile, on the one hand, element, but uh, really important and critical in the other. On the other, uh, Howard Schultz, I, I always uh, like to think about his statement. He said something like uh, – Founder of you know, Starbucks. In, yeah, on Starbucks, yeah. When, when he first uh, introduced Starbucks in the 60s, he said, if you introduced a new product, 90% of the people – uh, who looked at it would believe whatever you said about it. Um, but today, if you do the same thing, less than 10% of the public will believe whatever you tell them. So there's been a general wariness, and I think we've been fooled enough by advertising, by politicians, by business leaders. I mean, look what happened at Enron or WorldCom or with Bernie Madoff or whatever. We all have these experiences now. So I think trust levels have gone down, which makes it all the more precious and all the more valuable to understand its bedrock nature. And if you don't violate it, and if you fix things quickly, uh, you can have a competitive advantage. That, by the way, is in your self-interest. My guest today has been Joel Peterson. Joel, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Great to be with you. Thanks, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.